episode one. Here we go. I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Welcome back, boys. Hello. Can't believe we're back for season two. I can't believe our special guest is the first episode. Let's start. Our guest today is a legend, of course. She is a reality TV star. She is a pop star. She is a voguing legend, a radio personality, a podcast personality. She is a longtime partner in crime with one RuPaul Charles. She is the author of a memoir named Diva Rules, which you can find on Amazon right now. Welcome to the show, Miss Michelle Vizage. Hi, everybody. That was quite an intro. Thank you for, for having me and thank you for those lovely words. You know how I feel about each and every one of you. So I'm honored to talk to family. I'm very excited because on this show so far, we have not had a chance to do an exploration of the 1980s teen dance club scene of New Jersey, which is where I want to start because you were such a big part of that. I want you to lay the scene for us. Tell us what it was like, who was there, what you wore, what the music was, etc. The teen club scene was a moment in time that has never existed again. And it was a really important time because us youngins, so you couldn't be 12 and you couldn't be 20. It was anywhere from 13 to 19 was in these places. And they would open at like 7 p.m. and close at like 11. And our parents had to drop us off until we were of the age to drive. And I remember like having my mom drop me off like around the block because I was embarrassed of her station wagon. Um, uh-huh. My friend, my best friend, Laura, who I would go with, would ha- her father would drop us off with the fake wood paneling uh, yes. wagon with the CB whip antennas. And we were we like, we had that too. Yes. So we were like, drop us off and we'll walk. And the funny thing is, I wasn't popular, so to speak, in school. I was definitely one of the misfits and the outliers. Um, so I struggled a lot with whatever you want to call it back then, you know, back then we weren't allowed to call things depression and anxiety that didn't exist. So for me, I was just kind of a weirdo and a misfit and never really ever fit in until I found the nightlife, the nightclub life. And though New Jersey wasn't what New York held with freaks, weirdos and misfits, um, it was definitely a place where I didn't, nobody knew me. So they didn't know me to be this kind of weirdo nerd girl. Um, I was just like, like I was it because I could dance. I could move. Everybody has their big hair and ash and wash jeans. And what, what, is, what is the look? Yeah. Very big hair, very short shirts, um, tight biker shorts, which ironically are back again with those little flat lace up Victorian looking booties, which were flattering on no one ever in any era um, with like, the little Lolita foldover socks with the ruffle on them. Um, there was a lot of neon. Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of neon involved. And this was the era of a new artist called Madonna, and then Cindy Lauper. So it was a lot of neon fishnet, um, the jelly bracelets, but neon and black and white. 
Um, my kind of signature was always my cat eye, but I did it with a, like a royal blue. And I remember the, the <laughs> brand of the pencil was Cleopatra, and I would light it with a lighter to burn it into my skin, like <laughs> quite literally. And I would do, you know, I did my own hair, and I could the bigger the better. And my mother wouldn't buy me Aquanet, even though it was cheap. So I worked and I bought myself the good stuff. I bought um, Sebastian Spritz Forte. And then I didn't have the good stuff money. I bought Aussie Scrunch Spray. So I smelled like a grape. I remember the Aussie, yes. But Michelle, I remember too, because I went to some of these too when um it, when I was a teenager in Michigan. Yeah. And it was sort of the same thing. But it was sort of the weirdos from every school yeah. went and it was the one place where I could see other homosexuals. Yeah. Because there was like, there were a lot of gay boys that went to those things. Well, back then you couldn't say you were gay. So most of them identified right. as bi. Um, and they just had close girlfriends and I was always the one. Um, but it was a place where I felt fancy. It was a place where I felt free and it was a place where I felt pretty And even though I always let that freak flag fly, I felt seen because people, boys from different schools would show me attention, whereas the boys in my school wouldn't. So I got laid very easily. Were there straight guys there or? Tons. Yeah. Tons of guidos. Now don't forget growing up in the tri-state area for those who did know what a guido is. For those who didn't, it was a very Italian hyper macho. If you looked at him, you'd think he was a flaming homosexual, but no, he was a guido. Lots of gel, done eyebrows, tight, tight jeans, very tan, very Italian, <laughs> lots of gold chains, capizios on the feet, possibly wearing cabaretis, just a lot of style and so sexy and doused in color. You're kind of turning me on here a little bit. <laughs> the gays were not prolific they were few and far between and they were usually a bit older and i would go to the gay version of the teen clubs and that's when i was like oh yeah but the straight clubs no there weren't a lot of gays but there was a lot of music and a lot of boys who didn't know who i was you then moved to new york when you were 17 and you went to the academy of what was it music and american musical dramatic academy amda a a a scamda it was in the Ansonia. Do you know the history of the Ansonia? Yeah, sure. Right. The Ziegfeld Follies and all this. Um, all the old Follies girls would be like walking through and they were like in their 90s and they were fabulous with their make stoles and their ermine coats. And it was just like, oh, I would look at them. And be, I love that. And then, of course, in the basement was the Continental Bathhouse. So, like, I couldn't have been in a more appropriate college situation. And Wait, the bathhouse was still open when you went? I don't know if they were still open, but they were in the basement. Yeah, sure. No, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they were still open. I didn't learn about that. Well, that's where Bette Midler and Barry Manlow and everybody got their start. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and my school is like, the, they were legendary for Tyne Daly graduating, and that was kind of it. I think it was <laughs> Tyne Daly and Eric Estrada, and they claimed to fame nobody else. That's fabulous. So across the street was the, and still is, the Beacon Hotel. AMDA has since moved. So they had two dorms, the more expensive one, which was the Beacon, and a cheaper one, I forgot what it was called. There were three of us girls sharing a one bedroom. We had three single beds in the one bedroom. Now these apartments were big-ish for New York City, but each of us paid 
a lovely sum. They were making out very well because each one, you know, paid. And I remember it was the first time in my life where like um, cockroaches were everywhere and nobody did anything. My mother's like, just get their little raid traps. They'll be fine. But I'd wake up to get my cocoa pebbles at like two or three o'clock in the morning and they'd be like, scatter, scatter. But you became uh, used to it. You totally, you became numb to it. It was like a part of living in New York. So I lived in the Beacon Hotel for two years until I graduated because it was an associate's program. It wasn't a bachelor's program. You're 17 years old at this time. And there's a funny story about how your mother was pushing you to be into the club scene, which is the exact opposite of my mother. What did she do? She got you. So you I came home from school one day. You know, I moved to New York to become an actress and a singer and a, 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 just a star. Like that's all I could do in life. And if I didn't make it, I don't know what I'd be doing. My other option was a veterinarian and, and yeah, the school thing kind of stopped me from doing that. So um, I, my mother said, are you going out? I'm like, mom, I'm 17. I'm going to be 18, but I don't, you know, you have to be 21. So I arrived back to the Beacon Hotel one day and there's a package there from my mother and I open it and it's a fake ID saying that I was from the University of Texas with my picture. And that, <laughs> to make sure I had another ID because a lot of bouncers back then were like, uh, 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 she got a notarized fake birth certificate that said that I am that person on the ID. And she said, have a great time. Go get them. You know, I love you. God bless mother. That is amazing. She's like, go get discovered now. Cause that was our, that was our only option, you know, for somebody to walk in and see me waiting tables or going to a club and meeting producers. Cause we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have an internet. So that's how we got discovered. Where did you go with your fake? ID and fake births. What was the first stop in this journey? The first stop was the Palladium. And um, I'm lucky I'm cute because that ID, I don't know how it worked, but it worked every time. And then the bouncers got to know me, so they didn't card me anymore. They just called me abs because I would simply just wear a bra. (laughs) And I had abs back then. That was before children. And then the place where it really all started for me was not long after, and it was called the underground in union square. Yeah. Right. Where Andy Warhol studio is right above. Yeah. And Max is Kansas city across the street. Yes. And then it turned into palace debut later, but, um, the underground, you know, Stephen Lewis used to do the, um, it wasn't a huge club, but it was very popular at the time. And, um, I had heard about it just through, through mutterings through the school. And I, and I went, I grabbed my, my best friend at school and I said, please come. We went and she went to the bathroom and I walked down the steps. There's steps and I walked down and this this story is how it all started for me. There was the most beautiful brown skinned boy I'd ever seen in my life. And he walked over to me and he grabbed me. He's like, you have the most beautiful face I've ever seen. And I was literally like, oh, he must be talking, you know, looking behind me. He must be talking to my friend, Aria. And he's like, you, that face, you have to come with me. And he was extravagant and flamboyant and beautiful. And he brings me down these steps into the darkest room, which could have been anything could have happened. And then I walked in and, and it was like 20 to 30 of the, the weirdest, freakiest looking misfits I'd ever seen in my life. And I knew, I knew that I was home. And I, I always say like, you know, Dorothy clicked her heels three times and ended up in Kansas. I clicked my heels three times and ended up on Christopher Street because that was the moment. Was that Caesar? So that was David. David's no longer with us, but he's the one who brought me in. And that's when I saw Voguing for the first time that night. Um, 
I don't think Caesar was there. I met Caesar later on at the piers, at the Christopher Street piers. That's what. That, so that was the first night you were voguing, but like, were you at home practicing or you just figured it out in that moment? So, like, you just like. Never heard of it. Saw it for the first time. Thought it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. But also, somehow they looked really cool doing it. So I was like, what is this? So I, you, especially Randy and Fenton, you know I am a fake it till you make it type of girl. So oh, yeah. I will blend into <laughs> any accent, any anything, whatever I have to do to get the job. So I was just like, oh, you know, faking it. And then they were coming up to me and I was like, they were like, whatever I had to do. And they were like, you are good. And I'm like, I know, right? Like, <laughs> and then I went to the piers with them and that's where I met Willie Ninja and Caesar Ninja, who is now Caesar Valentino with Caesar, Caesar Magnifique. And they brought me into the house of Magnifique and, and I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of the house. Everybody wanted to be an extravaganza. Extravaganza paid me no mind, but the Magnifiques saw me and um, I was like, yeah, I want to do this. And that's how the whole ballroom thing started for me. That would be 1986 or 87. Well, I want to go back a little bit because I want to hear some more about the peer scene huh. because that's something we haven't had a chance to talk about on this show. Yeah. And it is so fascinating oh, yeah. just how everybody congregated down there. And it was, so tell me a little bit about just voguing on the peers and, and the people you would meet. So literally... I am. Yeah, I saw. I saw everything. Everybody knew everybody. Because um, there was like sex working going on at the same time. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So what would happen was this: there was a family of of people, whether you knew them or not. It was a family community. It felt like family. Um, even the kids that weren't in my house, um, there'd be extravagances over there, labages over there, and it was never shade. Everybody just kind of congregated. And the only shade that ever happened, like in these rating challenges, were when you were having fun, it was literally a kiki or on the ballroom floor. And it was never, like I, I often say that we're in a bit of a pickle right now with the way social media is allowing people within the community to come for one another instead of lift each other up. I never, ever, ever had to experience magnifiques, extravaganzas. These houses were houses of color. People did not look like me walking balls and, and being a cisgender woman. And I was never, ever judged for being the color of my skin or being the gender that I was born or uh, being too tall, too short, too big, too small. None of that ever came up. They were just like, you are fierce. We love you. And I was, I just felt, that's what I felt in that moment. Whereas high school was such a battle for me to fit in this was so smooth. I had no bumps in the road, none. And the same thing was happening on the piers. Like, okay, every once in a while there was a tussle, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't negative. It wasn't violent. Sex worker was going, these kids, most of these kids, and there were kids there, 11, 12, 13, some of them that were thrown out of their house. And the only way to survive was sex work. So they would do their thing, come back and be like, Hey girl, you know, just made a quick 30 bucks, you know, like that type of thing. And it was like, come on, come on over. We've got food here. You know, even if we went to McDonald's, we'd all share. Um, it's just kind of the way it was. Mother Angie, Extravaganza, Octavia, 
um, Saint Laurent. Yeah, they were yeah. all there. And uh, tell, tell me a little bit about Mother Angie because she was someone who was a pretty interesting person. I I knew her a little bit at Sound Factory. Uh, my experience with her was amazing, you know. And back then, transgender wasn't a word that people used. Right. Um, and she was just a queen and she was never, she had a, a resting bitch face so she could look shady, but she was, she, she could be scary girl, but she could read you. She could, she could read down, a bitch. She down, could cut you down. down. Yes. But she was always very lovely to me and very loving. And I think in the beginning, you know, there was a little bit of, cause they had Julie Jules and her and I shared a little bit of a same look. We both had our blonde ponytails and nobody did it first, but there was a little bit of competition between me and Julie, but I was a bogart. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, Julie wasn't, but they wanted to put us against each other because we had similar looks, the pale skin, the blonde ponytail, but that's kind of where it stopped, to be honest. Um, but did you eventually befriend Julie? Did you know Julie at all? No, we didn't become friends, but it was always like, hi, and then she ended up, I think, marrying a mutual friend of mine, which was Mike. Oh, from Nervous Records, right? Yeah, and I was really good friends with him, so it ended up paths crossing, but... um it was, you know, oh, back to Angie. Yeah, so Angie was just wonderful. She never, Angie, Danny, Jose, Lewis, I knew all of them and none of them were ever shady or mean or awful. It was just like a house thing. If I, if the Ganses were going up against anybody else, you knew that the Ganses were there. Did you get a chance to ever meet Dorian Corey or uh, Avis Pendavis or any of you, Paris? I believe I got to meet Avis Pendavis, not Dorian, but Jerome Pendavis was one of our kids. Um, Jerome, after Ava's passed, became a magnifique. But I believe I got to meet or see Avis. Um, well, we talked about this. I don't know if you guys remember with Louis Extravaganza, where I remember so vividly that the whole club would start stomping and go, Avis, and Avis. Yep. And they, you would just hear it, like thundering, like the, the goddess entering the arena. We also got that with Pepper. La Beja. La Beja. You know, this thing yeah. is Pepper, it's Pepper's move. Um, oh. Pepper La Beja was legendary. And I, I learned about all these pioneers when I came in. This was all kind of, here is your education. You need to learn this. You need to know about our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters that paved the way before you get out there. And I never intended to compete. It, I was became a little bit of a local legend with voguing within the circle and Caesar, my house father, is the one who there was a. I can't remember what ball it was, but it was um, Femme Queen Vogue, and he just took my back and pulled me in. And I was like, "Hey, I don't belong here," you know. And my imposter syndrome just—I had no choice to leave because once you're on the floor, you can't turn around. You can't. Sure. So um, um, that's what happened. So you won. You're, you won your the first time you walked. Correct. Vogue Femme. Yes. <laughs> okay. And is this where, when did you, when did Michelle Visage, when did the name come? Because well, I know it started with Cara. So I used to walk face and Vogue. Um, and when I started walking face, everybody kind of knew me from my face. I was one of the ones who would go up there with Pond's cold cream and a wipe and be like, no makeup. Channel 5 News, MTV, all these news places were interviewing me about Voguing, um, along with, you know, the other kids that we would Vogue with. And my mother would call me and go, why can't you just put some makeup on for the news? <laughs> and I was like, mom, I walk face. I don't wear makeup. Like she was not having it. She's like, some mascara would kill you. 
Um, so it was that it was that type of, of thing. But um, so so cara is is the Spanish word for face. So correct. I'd walk face, and it was because the ballroom circuit is people of color are very Latinx. You'd hear cara cara, and that means face in Spanish. And then I started putting like Pat Fields would sell you know all those things with the the mirrored letters on them, and they would see, right. right. So I went to Pearl Art Supply because it was too expensive for me to buy anything. Uh, <laughs> and I bought the letters myself and epoxied them on my white motorcycle jacket that I got at Trash and Vaudeville as a graduation. <laughs> and I put the word gara. So chic. Right. So <laughs> I put the word gara at the bottom, which is spelled Cara, C-A-R-A. So I'd walk down the street and people would be like, hey, Cara, thinking it was my name. And I was like, do I look like a Cara? I do Cara's like the whitest. I don't look like a Cara. So I realized, oh, they're saying Cara. So I, I took six years of French in school. So um, visage means face in French, and that's what stuck. Wait, when was it that you won the Madonna Lookalike Contest? I, I think we're going back a little bit here because... That's back in high school, yeah. But, you know, she... And it's so funny because these days I'm getting more and more people say, you know, you look so much like Madonna. And I'm like, Guys, this has been my whole freaking career. It doesn't matter what color my hair is. It doesn't matter what weight I am, like what color she, her, she's doing with her hair now. It's like, this is my whole life. We share a face, I guess, to a certain extent. But um, that was when I was 16. When was it that you did the uh, MTV Dance Club? Because I saw that on your Instagram. The grind, right? How amazing were those? I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> I saw them. I was like, what are these little dance moves I'm doing? Um, that would have been, that would have been 80, around the same time, I guess. Because the look, Michelle, the look is just so beautiful. It's I love some of your pictures on your Instagram where it's like, this is all of 1987 in one picture <laughs> with the hair. Hair, Michelle, eyeliner. The key thing about that moment is Michelle clocks the camera, is trained on her, and immediately does this little dance with this, <laughs> with this moment of slow motion, like midway through it. It's like, that's when you knew she was going to be on TV, right? Because she just like, just sense the camera. She's doing her thing and then she said, oh, camera, over there. Listen, Carpe Diem, you don't know how long you're going to be on this show. You don't yeah. know how long you're going to wubba, wubba, wubba. So I had to like, you know, use it. <laughs> I have a general sort of nightclubbing question. Okay. Cause you um you never really drank or did drugs, never, right? Never in my life. Or or sex work, presumably. Well the sex work. That's, we're not gonna talk about I that. I didn't get paid but for it, dream- but I should have. Okay, but Oh you're but- like James St. James, he never charged. Correct. <laughs> But, but, I tried. I tried to walk the street once. I tried to to do it, and nobody. I was in club kid gear, and everyone kept passing me by. I was like on the strip, and finally one guy picked me up, and I gave him a. We, we yeah. I did something, yeah. and then afterwards I was so thankful that he picked me up. I refused to take his money, and that was the only time I, I was like, "Thank you, thank you so much, sir." Oh, James, you're my long lost sister. That was my only attempt. 
<laughs> I, I just, just the the drinking and the drugs thing. Yeah. Were you an anomaly, or was it that the the voguing scene that wasn't part of it? Because you know, it, it, you, you know, we used to go to clubs, but Ben and I never really. I mean, we drank a bit, but we, you know, we weren't doing drugs, and that's why we missed this whole part of like we saw people the next day, early evening. We would be home in bed by eleven or something like that, and I just wondered how it worked for you in relationship to being around people do- drinking and doing drugs when you weren't doing Thank it. You. I remember Thank going you. to tracks for the first time and um, smelling a smell that I'd never smelled, and I looked to Caesar and I'm like, "What is that?" He's like, "Girl, that's dust. That's PCP." There's oh wow. It's really pungent. Because they did do a lot of dust, didn't they? A lot, a lot of those queens. Very popular back at tracks and the rocks. And yeah. yeah. So I um, was too scared to do drugs. Um, I don't know why. Um, the, I'm just neurotic and scared. And alcohol did not suit me. And all I really ever wanted to do was be successful. And I thought, if I get caught up in this, that's going to stop me from getting that. And it was never, ever tempting to me. So that's why my mother had no problem getting me a fake ID because she knew I wasn't going to become, you know, a teenage alcoholic. She just wasn't concerned. I didn't like it. I don't do well on it. And uh, it just would never, I remember even being in the group and the manager, you know, we were backstage and one of my managers at the time was like passing along a platter of cocaine. And I was like, he's like, you want? I'm like, ew, no, why are you offering that to me? I'm like 19. And I'm pushing it on. And he's like, I just don't know how you don't do it. And I'm like, I don't know how you do. I wouldn't be able to function. And then the thought of something going up my nose grosses me out. I hate those things anyway. Like a book. Well, I think it's also a testament to, to your longevity is that, that that is something how you have managed to keep the energy up for 40, 30 years or whatever, however long it's been now. And that there's the, that you have been, you know, pretty relentless because you don't have that, those distractions. That honesty of like i just wanted to be successful yeah you know because at that time it wasn't actually that cool to admit to wanting to be successful and that was the beginning of this whole people went to clubs because they were sort of creative or they didn't want to be successful or they didn't want to you know it was like alternative and underground and you and your mother were like completely focused on this is the way to get successful and success is what it's about and i think that's amazing to hear that you know what? First of all, thank you. Second of all, I didn't come from very much. And I knew, and I think my mother kind of was there because she knew they didn't have anything to give and they didn't have any connections. They didn't have any anything, so to speak, except belief in me. So I just, I couldn't think of... What that would do for me, Fenton, if I drank or did drugs. And to me, all I ever wanted was success. And you you boys know me. You know how I work. All I want to do is work. If I could work all day, every day, I would. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have fun. I love being with my husband. I love my family. I love, you know, enjoying life. But um, I love what I do is not work. What I do, I love doing. And um, if I was drunk or high, I wouldn't have been able to do it because I wasn't gifted with a voice like Adele or Mariah. I wasn't given money like, you know, 
Paris Hilton. So these things would not have come to me if I was fucked up on drugs and alcohol, I don't think, or I wouldn't have gotten them. I was told many times I would never get to where I am today. During this period when you're out in the clubs and you, you mentioned Palladium and tracks and like sound factory and things like that, but did you also do area and tunnel? And did Mm. you, did what I'm trying to get at is, did we ever cross paths when I was like working at the world or, Red Zone, because I... Did you meet James, and what did you think of him? (laughs) No, it's not what you think of him. I'm just wondering if we really, if we crossed paths during those periods, and if you were running with the club kids. So, yes, Mm -hmm. we 100% had to, because I was at the World every weekend for after. Uh, No, Mm -hmm. we'd go to the World, and then we'd go to Robots. So, we 100% crossed paths. Kenny Kenny and I were like buddy-buddy. I knew the It Twins, I knew Michael, all the legends, um, including Rue. And that's where Rue and I first met. Now we met there, we didn't become close there. But that's where we met because we'd always see each other. Well, you, you met Rue at Suzanne. One day I was doing a newscast and I think it was with um, Wilford Brimley. Wait, what? From Cocoon? The old man from Cocoon? Yeah, him. He did some kind of news thing. And she walked back in an unused dressing room at the Copa and RuPaul had two drinks in her hand, busted into the room, didn't know we were filming. She goes, oh, and I was like, hey, girl. She's like, hey, and she walks out and just leaves. And that was, I think, the first time we exchanged words. But if you ask Ru, you know, we I'd always see Ru. Ru would always see me. Um, We'd watch each other, but we'd never really connected until I came out with a song on the Bodyguard soundtrack and Rue came out with Supermodel and we were at the dance music convention and we were in the same green room and I walked up to Rue and I was like, hi, I don't know if you remember me. And he was like, first of all, girl, stop right there. I've been watching your little blonde ass for years. And he said, of course I remember you because you are a motherfucking superstar. And that moment is cemented in time in my soul because the only other person that told me, only other person that ever told me I was a star was my mother. Mama Roo, Mama Roo. Yeah, and that's where we kind of had this moment. And then when the radio thing happened, flash forward to 1996, I had auditions with four different morning shows and they said, we've got one more for Fashion Week and then we'll decide who we're going to go with. And I was like, okay. I was sitting there at a meeting. Rue Paul walks into this hotel room. It was like, and he said, of course it's Michelle Visage sitting here all roads lead to Visage. Who else would it be? This is it. And that was it. The rest is her story. And he brought me on as, you know, the co-host on the RuPaul show on VH1 in 1996. And that's where it all began. Because you mentioned Suzanne and Copacabana. I want to do a little love ball because the love ball was very, uh, a big part of your, your, the education of Michelle Visage. Um, all the balls were a very big part. The House of Fields balls, that all of them were um, the education of Michelle Visage because I learned so much from queer people and I learned so much um, about myself through queer people. The first one, that was the one that Madonna was at, right? When she first discovered voguing, right? Was that was the first love ball. And that th- you walked with the, the Magnifiques probably, right? Walked with Magnifiques. I walked Vogue. Um, at this time, I think women were starting to Vogue more. This is like... Um, two or three years after I started voguing, because I think that was 89 or 90. So I think I started voguing in like 86-ish. 
Um, so it all falls in line. And yeah, vogued with the Magnifiques and had my knee pads on, had my blonde ponytail on, and did my thing. Who dressed you for that? Who dressed the Magnifiques? Do you remember that? Was it a Matthew and Zaldi thing or something? No, we dressed ourselves because we weren't high profile like the other houses were. But don't forget, at this point, things were starting to blow up because of voguing starting to blow up. So like, you know, the judges were like Mark Jacobs and people like that that were judging this love ball. And I remember Andre Leon Talley and yes, yes, Lee Bowery, I remember. I would see Lee Bowery all the time at Suzanne's parties. I'm so curious about this. Like two sort of milestone moments in the journey of voguing into the mainstream. One, of course, was when Paris is Burning came out. And then the second one is when Madonna put out Vogue. And I just, I'd just love to know what you thought and what those around you thought of those two moments, because we all know what cultural milestones both of those moments were and how epic they proved to be in terms of the culture at large. But I just wonder how you all felt seeing your world. It was at the first love ball that Madonna was first exposed to voguing culture is what the legend goes. Is that true, do you think? I don't know. That's the legend. You can never really know for sure. But, you know, she saw Jose and Lewis and they became her dancers for the Blonde Ambition Tour and they were in there and the rest is history. But, um, well, I guess Paris is burning first. So then do, do it in one answer and just beautifully segue, go from Paris is burning to Vogue. Because first came Paris is burning and then Vogue, right? Paris is burning. You know, we were always around when the cameras were around. I remember. I remember going up to Jenny Livingston. I was like, why? Because I'm a white, a white hetero voguer. Like, I don't get it. Like, I'm very much able to tell it makes complete part of this as, as much as everybody is. But, you know, my own ego got in the way. And when I pulled back and realized this was not my story. Sense, but I was a little hurt that I wasn't in it at the time because that was my scene. And I very felt that was my family. So I felt like, I should be part of this, you know? It's going to be a moment for these stories to be told. Not necessarily that my story needed to be told, but that I can be in the voguing sequences and around the ballrooms for all that. But um, my services were not needed, nor rendered. Um, and then Vogue, when Madonna came out with Vogue, it, there was murmurs going on for a long time about it happening. And we were like, what? And of course... You know, I had this love-hate thing with her because everybody compared me to her constantly because, well, I tried to look like her. And then when I didn't try to look like her, I still look like her. So there was nothing I can do. So when we heard Vogue was coming out, we were like, really? Let's see. And then it came out. It was so good. And we were so happy because, yes, it watered it down to the point where it became very mainstream. But hello, this is something so queer. But it was such a moment in pop culture history. It really was. If anyone who was around at that time, everybody's like changed everyone's life. Amazing. I can't listen. I danced to it, you know, and strictly like it was a moment for me that meant so much because something that I identified with so much by the artist who was my hero. Okay. They collided. The world's collided. I think there was a little um, hurt feelings for her choosing Jose and Luis and not other people. And, you know, we all wanted to be the chosen Madonna. I wanted to tour with Madonna. I gladly would have vogued all over the world with and for Madonna. But, you know, things. Do you think that you were on Madonna's radar at any point when seduction was happening and it takes two and, 
and all of the end of just even the voguing. Do you think that she knew who you are because you were always being compared to her? Were you on her radar? My instinct says no. And I always thought, no, who am I for Madonna to know who I was? And then the whole thing happened when I was in seduction that her record label called my record label and they called me and said, listen, we have a little issue. And I said, what? They said, Madonna's people just called and were very shady. And I said about, first of all, did you say Madonna's people just called? Right. And they, they, this, <laughs> right. The story goes, she said that if you're going to steal her look, the least you can do is do it well. So those were cutting words. Yes. But all I heard was, Madonna knows who I am. Right. She's in there. She's reading you to filth and you're like, oh my God, Madonna knows who I am. (laughs) She can read me to filth any day that she wants. Now, whether it's true or not, I don't know. That came from my record company. I don't know. Wait, is is this seduction? Yeah, seduction. And is this the video for- No, I don't know if it's a video. I don't know what happened in general, but then, um, I mean, if you watch the heartbeat video on YouTube, you can see- the, the influence right, sure. strongly, but then the lovely day video, when I was filming it, yeah. we filmed it at the, is it the Shelbourne, the Sheldrake? I forgot what it's called, but the hotel that got really, really hurt by the um, hurricane in 92 ruined. And it was be- in beautiful ruins. So we filmed our soul system. It's going to be a lovely day video there in the pool. And it was just kind of beautiful. And I was laying down on the second scene and they had to put flowers on me one by one because I was nude under the flowers. I remember that. And then it was like five o'clock in the morning so they can get the sunrise. Who comes jogging behind me? And I couldn't even see her. But Madonna, Madonna, and I think Carlos at the time, maybe, or somebody, um, she was a big runner, Madonna, running on the beach in Miami behind me. And they were like, don't tell Michelle because the flowers will all go everywhere. And they didn't tell me. <laughs> after. But there was always so many series of near misses. Like I talked to Lourdes online and, you know, there's just so many near misses, but again, I'm very much from the school of don't meet your heroes. Don't meet your idols. Um, I'm fine with Madonna staying on a pedestal where she belongs for me. During that period, I remember like doing the door of the world and Madonna would come and she would be in sweats and a, and a hoodie and she would stand yep. for like 40 minutes, wouldn't say who she was and barge through. And I remember she would come through and pay. She wouldn't say, I'm Madonna, blah, blah, blah. But I always remember thinking like, who is this little old Italian woman like standing here? Like when she doesn't want to be Madonna, she closes down. Like you don't know that you're in the presence of a star. And then I remember very specifically this time at, at the world where she went in and she was like this and nobody knew that she was there. And then all of a sudden at one point she was on the dance floor and started dancing and took it off and the hair came out and she started being Madonna and people, the whole club screamed. And this was right after who's that girl. She ran out of the the two glass doors and she looked at us and she smiled and she started running down the street and the entire club, all of the world followed her out as she was running down the street and she dove into a limousine laughing because she was able to turn it on and turn it off. Like at the time when she turned it on, the entire club freaked out. I would have lost my shit. Um, I've been at the gym when she was there, when I used to work out at Reebok on the Upper West Side. 
So I was there a few times when she was there and um, she was very kind of to herself and with her trainer, but I, I was fully, you know, stalking from behind. <laughs> That's, You're like, all the Cara Delevingne memes right now were me with Madonna. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so let's talk a little bit about seduction and um, the heady days that follows It Takes Two. How gratified do you feel at the time that your work is paying off and that you're number one? And, or do you still feel you have other mountains to climb and you keep going? What, what is that feeling of having number one? Uh, well, we never got there. Oh, wait. Oh, because you were number two, right? Wasn't it? Who, who stopped you? Was it Paula? Ask Paula Blue and her stupid animated cat in Opposites Attract. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Oh, I feel so bad. Oh, but you're still number two. Not better. Right. Yeah. Like we climbed consistently. We were number two with a bullet. Then Paula debuts at number one and stays at number one. Oh, God. Yeah, she does an incredibly insane video that's unbelievable with MC Scat Cat, the worst name in history. I remember Scat Cat to this day, yes. I partied with Scat Cat, boy. Woo, he and I were at Twilight Zone. (laughs) I bet you did. Um, Smoking angel dust with Scat Cat. (laughs) Exactly, they attract. Um, It was... Amazing. But you know what, James, for me, it was the only thing I knew how to do. Like I said earlier, like, yeah, I didn't come here to play. I came here to be the next Madonna. Like I am seriously gunning to do this girl group and then get out of it and Beyonce that shit. Like I wanted to be the next Madonna. So it wasn't like the imposter feeling. It was the, of course I'm here. This is, this is what I'm here for. This is, this is why I've been doing this. So it was like, thank God I got this opportunity because it almost didn't happen. I had to fight to get the audition for seduction because that job had belonged to somebody else. And I said, but you you haven't heard me sing. It was I Dallas, right? And who else? It was I Dallas. We didn't have April at the time. I Dallas was the only one that had been hired. And um, she was my best friend. And she told me about it. I was like, we'll do the she told me before this sounds racist that it was going to be an interracial girl group. So I said, then said, do they have a white girl? And she said, I think so. And I said, well, can you give me their number? Cause I want to audition. She goes, I can't, can't do that. And I said, yes, you can. You're my best friend. Imagine that we get to be in a girl group together. <laughs> oh my God. For best friends. That's a freaking dream. And I begged her. For the listeners out there. Um, we talked about Idalis a lot with the Lisa E episode because she and Lisa, uh, she really sort of mentored Lisa E when she was working at the Palladium, um, when she was a bartender at Palladium. So it's interesting yes. that Idalis comes up again. She's such a beautiful, beautiful. Do you have have you talked to Idalis? I saw her about ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, we we stay in touch. We stay in touch. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, so she she said, "All right, here's a number." So I call up. I'm like, "Hi." My name is Michelle Visage. Um, I heard you're doing a girl group and I am the white girl you need. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry, but we already have somebody in that position. I was like, but you don't have me. And they were like, okay. And I was like, just, you know, hear me. If you don't like the way I sing, I don't get the job. It's not going to hurt anybody by, by hearing me. And they were like, okay. I think they liked the tenacity. Sure. So um, sure. they were like, come sing for us. So I went in. Uh, it was the producers and uh, the management and <laughs> David Cole, rest in peace, said, what are you going to sing? And I was like, oh, 
Deja Vu by Tina Marie. Tina Marie has been my favorite artist for such a long time, vocally still. I'm such a huge Lady T fan. So I sang Deja Vu and David was like, nice. And David was the music guy, you know? So he was like, nice. Okay. What else you got? And I was like, I Am Love by Jennifer Holiday. Wow. <laughs> who am I to sing in Jennifer? Like, who the fuck am I? I was going to say the balls. (laughs) So um, I sang it and I stopped right before the high part where the song switches. And David Cole said, why'd you stop? And I was like, well, you heard enough. I sang one whole song. He goes, goes, if you sing that high part, you've got the job. And I was like, can I close my eyes? And he's like, sure. And I did it. And he's like, pack your panties. You're going to Virginia Beach. And they So You're My One and Only, which was Seduction's first song, um, had already been recorded and ghost vocals by Martha Wash. So it had already started charting and they realized, "Uh uh-oh, we don't have a group to go perform in the clubs to support the record. So they put us together. Wait, poor Martha Wash. Did you guys do it to her? Did you like, no, because you remember she always had that problem with with all the other bands. It would be her voice. She won the lawsuit. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. I love Martha. I still love her. We still talk to this day. I absolutely love her. Now, but have you ever had a chance to tell Jennifer that that you sang her song? <laughs> have you ever run in, run into Jennifer Holiday? No, actually, I haven't. And my God, I wouldn't even tell her because what if she said, "Let me hear," and I'd be like, mm, "Girl, bye." <laughs> I am not going to embarrass myself. Uh, so for me, I think though I have a you know I have an average voice. I think what I have is tenacity and I don't take no for an answer. Like I find a way to hustle myself in and I am a worker. So one thing is for sure. If you let me do it, I will fucking deliver guaranteed. Yeah. Well, that is, that is the Michelle Visage we know and love. Um, let's talk for a minute about the RuPaul talk show that, that was 96, 97. Was that the years? Correct. Two seasons, 100 episodes. I want to yes. name some of the people very quickly. Anna Nicole Smith. Yes. Debbie Harry. Eartha yes. Chit. Dionne Warwick. Yes. John yes. Waters. Cindy Lauper. Diana Ross. Little Kim. Pam Greer. Bernadette Peters, who I know was probably your doing, right? That was, you must have lost your mind. So there were a lot that I lost my mind over, but when Bernadette Peters and Pat Benatar came on, it was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, I didn't even know what to say. There were, but, you know, there's a lot of legends that cross those paths. Um, you know, there was a lot. Uh, Millie Jackson, Cher, Esther Roll. Yeah. Yes. Menudo. Yes. I, yeah. Um, uh, Linda Blair, Laura Branigan. I would have died. Yeah. There's so many. Like, each one was better than the other, and they were all so participatory. Like, everybody was excited to be there. Lil Kim was there. Like, Lil freaking Kim. It was like, oh my God, so many people, um, even in sync and the Backstreet Boys, like, they were all there. I think there was so much goodwill towards Rue at that point yeah. because it was that feeling that family is becoming successful that this was our family this is this is downtown that is on vh1 now and is mingling with pat benatar and our idols i wish that we could run them i know a lot of the reason we can't rerun them is because of music 
rights. Yeah. Because there's so much music involved. But like I used to do Mission Visage at the top of every episode, which was hidden camera work. And I love doing hidden camera stuff. Um, there was just so many. Rue and I used to do sketch comedy. Oh, yeah, because there were little comedy skits. Rue would come out and perform, and she had the backup dancers. And those David Darumble dresses she would wear. I mean, it was it was such and Jamal. A great... Yes, Jamal, Jamal was one of her dancers. Yeah, oh, I forgot about that. That's right. Well, I know that I've told you this before in other places, but I want to talk a little bit about the Ho Ho Ha album because it meant so much to me. And I know that's that's funny, oh. but there was I, I I've said that in nineteen was it ninety seven that it came out. Yes, yeah. I believe so. 97. And that's when I had just moved to Los Angeles. I was escaping New York and I was sort of trying to reinvent myself and I was having a hard time and I didn't know anybody out here. And I remember I had dinner with Randy and Fenton and they gave me a copy of the album. They said, this is, you know, Rue has just done this album. And I went home and I remember hearing Hard Candy Christmas. It was, it was Christmas time. And I would listen to that over and over and over again and cry and say, yes, I'm having a hard candy Christmas, but I'm going to get through it. I'm going to get my pussy wig and I'm going to make it through. And so I just want to let you know how much that meant to me. That song, that and The Lovely Day, both are seared in my head as like really just oh, turning points man. in my life. That makes me happy that we can share those moments together. But also... Yeah. Um, that hard candy Christmas song, you know, I, it's been, you know, my Broadway obsession, but one of the dream roles for me has always been Miss Mona in Best Little Whorehouse. So to be able to do that song with Rue all those moons ago when I was far too young to play Miss Mona um, was special. So who knows, maybe one day I'll be singing it on Broadway. My mother and I always used to laugh and say that Gary Collins was the hardest working man in showbiz. Do you remember Gary Collins? Of course. If there was like a rose parade, he was the 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 head of it. If he was, he would judge every, you know, Miss America contest. He was every, and I think that you were, have replaced Gary Collins as the hardest working person in showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to give you, before we leave, I'm going to give you 30 seconds and I want you to tell me 10 projects that you're pushing in the next six months. 10 things that you've got on your plate. What do you have going? Now? Yeah. Well, we've got RuPaul's Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, RuPaul's Drag Race Done Under, RuPaul's Drag Race United Kingdom. I've got Queens of the Universe. Um, Leah and Michelle talk show coming 2023. Wow. Um, um, uh, what else am I missing? What else am I missing? Are you, do you have um, any stage yeah. work? Do you have, do you have any, uh, broad? Or, well, or, I would love to, I just don't have time to. You have a podcast happening in the UK. Oh, yes. BBC rule breakers. Uh, that's on BBC sounds. I do that once a week, which is really fun for me. Um, and w whatever else. There's things that are filmed that haven't been announced, so we'll just have to wait and see. Well, I have had a chance to to catch you on Wendy Williams, you and Leah, and you guys are so funny. And it's just, it's such a natural for you. It is such a good fit. So I've been really enjoying mm -hmm. that. We have a very specific brand of chaos, yeah. um, and uh -huh. it's all kind of surrounded with love. And if you want to laugh and, and like what we're selling, that's kind of what we're about, doing things our way and differently just to shake up the system, you know? 
one of the things that we haven't had a chance to talk about, and just very quickly, I want to um, have some breast talk with you. Oh, sure. Uh, first of all, what is Hashimoto's disease? I don't, I don't know about this. What is it? Okay. Hashimoto's is the number one autoimmune disease in America. So autoimmune diseases attack different parts of our body. So, you know, Crohn's and colitis and, you know, ulcerative colitis, they obviously attack that. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune where your body attacks the thyroid. Um, 90% of the people who are diagnosed with hypothyroidism actually have the autoimmune form of hypothyroidism, which is Hashimoto's, but people, they don't test for it. How do you know that you have it and what does it, how does it affect you? How I found out was I was trying to get pregnant. I was on the pill. And when I went off the pill, everything was unleashed because the, the pill was masking everything. So once I went off of it, everything went loose. So I stopped menstruating regularly. My skin was really dry. I would eat one piece of lettuce and gain 10 pounds in a week. I would sleep for nine hours, then wake up and have to sleep and take three and four hour naps. My, my hair was falling out. None of this made sense. And then when I was trying to get pregnant, I couldn't get pregnant, couldn't get, and then my, my cycles were getting longer and longer, but each test was negative, negative. So after six months of trying to conceive and not getting pregnant, I go to my doctor and he said, well, not only are you not pregnant, you're not even ovulating. How long have you had this, this growth on your thyroid, this nodule? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I had no idea. So that's when it was off and running. And I went to the endocrinologist and straight away, he said that I have Hashimoto's. And the problem is most doctors don't test for the autoimmunity portion of it. They just run a TSH. And that is nothing of what people need to know. If they have Hashimoto's, they need to get a, a TAG and a TPO run. And I know this is getting clinical, but it's super important for anybody who's ever been diagnosed with hypothyroidism that you hear me go to your doctor and ask them to see if you have Hashimoto's or the autoimmune version. Because if you do, changes need to be made immediately. Because James, when they say, well, you've got Hashimoto's, nothing you can do about it. Here's your Synthroid. You're going to be on it for the rest of your life. See you in six months for blood work. It's not, it's, it's so not that there is so much more that can be done and can be controlled through diet. And I believe that I got my Hashimoto's through breast implant illness because nobody in my family has it. And, um, my, you know, none of my sisters have it. My mother didn't have it. My father doesn't have it. And, um, I believe they were caused by my breast implants. When was it that you got your breast implants? How, how, what, what era was this? When did you do it? My first breast implants were 1990, uh -huh. I believe. And uh -huh. second ones were 96. Third ones were um, 2002, three, 2003. Are, were you increasing the size? What, what, or were you- Yes, yes. Of course, of course. And is this saline implants? What is this? So I started with silicone. Next set was saline because of the moratorium on silicone implants. And then when they were legalized again, I did silicone again for my third set. Now that has nothing to do with breast implant illness. Breast implant illness has nothing to do with the filling of the implant. Okay. It is all about the case. Okay. The shell of the implant contains 40 plus chemicals that are complete disruptors in your body. Now, not everybody will get breast implant illness. Not everybody's body will reject them or have a problem, but so you're saying that it has nothing to do with the leaking 
No. No, it's just Nothing. that your body isn't accepting of, of these, right? There are chemicals in the shell of these implants that are the same chemicals that are in inkjet printer fluid, um, motor oil, like really, really bad stuff um, that these chemicals are, formaldehyde, like things that are should not be put in a human's body. And we've been lied to over the years by the FDA saying that they were safe when they actually weren't. So now at least the FDA has put a black box warning on implants. But the downside of that is 100% of the time we are under anesthesia before the implants come out. We don't get a box to look at. It's not like a cell phone or a pack of cigarettes where you get it and you see a warning on it. We are already unconscious with anesthesia. The doctor is the only one seeing the warning, right? And he's not telling you because he's made a sale. Well, it's up to the surgeon to then say, and that's why I did explant and spoke to the surgeon. It's like, it's up to you to tell them. Just tell them. It probably won't happen to you, but it could happen to you. You could get cancer from that. It's like smoking or or drugs or whatever. I think that when you're young and you want you want your boob size to increase, whatever, like you're going to take your chances. And a lot of young people are probably would would ignore the warning anyway. Probably when I was 21, I got my first set. You are correct. When I got my first set, I was 21, and I nothing would have stopped me. Yeah. When I got my second set, I was 26, and I'm not sure anything would have stopped me. Mm-hmm. My third set, however, I was already thinking that something was to do with these. And I asked the surgeon, and he's like, no, you know, because this is what we're taught in medical school. I don't blame them. This is what they're told. So I was like, okay, but this just makes sense. If my body is fighting off an invader 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the only invader is these two blobs of silicone on my chest cavity, right by my lungs and my heart. So, woo. So, um, yeah, that's what started the deep dive. What are the symptoms of, of this that's happening to you that you're, the mystery that you're trying to, to solve? And is anybody helping you solve this? How are you, are you online trying to figure it out? No, no. I've got, I went to doctor after doctor, wonderful doctors who cared about my health. And I would even say to some of them, I feel like I should get my implants taken out. And some of them will go, not so quickly because you don't want to disrupt anything, you know, in case there is something. So like when you get, when you go to a chiropractor, they take your x-ray first, because if you adjust a spine and there's a cancer in there or a growth, you can unleash it into your body. This is something that actually can happen. So a lot of people say they don't want to biopsy or do things because they could release it into your body. Like um, there used to be a way of taking out tumors in women's parts that they would basically you know, macerate it with like a drill type of thing. And it would come out that way instead of opening you up and taking it out whole. And, um, it's, it's happened where then the cancer was released into the body and they die, not from the release of that, but from cancer from spreading. So a lot of doctors were like, don't do that. You may upset the system, but I'm like, my system's already angry as hell and I have to do something about it. So Yes, research after research after research on the internet and studying and looking at this and correlations between Hashimoto's and breast implants. I mean, I'm going back to when there wasn't much of a, there wasn't even a Google, there wasn't much of a yahoo.com search, you know, where we're still using MapQuest for God's sake. And I'm trying to find out if breast implants can make you sick. So I just realized after all these years, and it was my husband's idea to do a documentary. And he was like, you can help so many people because so many women don't know why they're sick. So the whole point of Explant the documentary 
It's not anti-plastic surgery. It's pro-transparency. So we know what's in our bodies because nobody else, and I'm living proof, nobody else will advocate for us. And it's not that you're taking a sale away from the plastic surgeon. I just don't think they can face the fact that so many women got sick in their hands. Right. And you know, right. now that they know, I would hope that they say to their patients, probably won't happen, could happen. Now you know. If you want to do it, we'll do it. If not, understood. So the documentary is Explant. It's about my journey with breast implant illness and explanting my implants. And by the way, it's not really just about my story. It's the history. There's so much information that you can find out about what you're putting in your body or what you have in your body and how to get rid of it. There's resources. It's so important. And you can catch it on Paramount+. Plus. Um, it's a wonderful doc, and I hope it enlightens you. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so glad we finally got a chance to sit down and talk. And you are, it's, it's been uh, as special as I knew it would be. I love you so much. I love you, James, so, so much. I can't wait to see you soon, my darling. Michelle, I love you. You're a crazy bitch. And this has been the most amazing experience. I can't wait for you to come back again and tell us more about your crazy life. Bye. 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 B